It's a joy uh, to be in your home this morning, opening God's Word with you. This is uh, week seven of this, our, our seventh time of doing a live stream service, and uh, this is, uh, it's, it's, a, it's a strange time. I encourage you to open up to Judges 10, uh, Judges chapter 10, but it's, it's strange, and, and this is not uh, how God has designed us to, to worship. This is not how God has, has ordained that we would be and, and stay and, and grow spiritually healthy, and yet it's, it's where he sovereignly placed us this morning and for the next uh, for foreseeable Sundays. And so uh, one, of the, one of the challenges that I've been, been thinking through is how do we, how do we approximate as, as close as possible what God would have us do on a Sunday morning as we worship him? And, and I believe one of the healthiest things for a church to do on a regular basis is to, is to hear from God's Word, to, to practice expository preaching, that is taking a, a book of the Bible and, and working our way through it, or a section of Scripture and working our way through it. And that's, that's harder to do in this sort, of, this sort of format. And so what we're going to do this morning is we're going to do what, what I, eight weeks ago, did not think we would be doing. Uh, we're going to return to the book of Judges, the book that we were in before this uh, pandemic began, and we're just going to kind of begin to, to walk our way through the book of Judges again. I think this is the most spiritually healthy thing for us to do, to begin to, to, to go deeper in, into God's Word. But I also recognize, I also recognize this is a little bit of a challenge, right? I know that uh, in the best of circumstances, whenever we're together in a room and, and, and I'm teaching, it's, it's hard sometimes to stay completely focused, and I, I know that where you are right now, probably, it, it might be a little bit more difficult to, to stay connected to the, the message and the text. And so I want to kind of balance some of those things. Last week, whenever uh, our family was, was home and I, I wasn't uh, here, and everyone was on the couch. I mean, it's, it's, a really comfy, it's a really comfy place, and so it's kind of hard sometimes to, to, to tune in and to really pay attention and I know that might be a challenge for some of our, our younger uh, members as well. And so, so kids, I feel like Mr. Rogers here. Kids, uh, I know that this, is, uh, it, this can be a little challenging, but I believe in you, right? I, I know you guys do a great job, uh, young people. You do a great job on Sunday mornings paying attention. Uh, you do much better as young children than I did when I was your age. So I just want to celebrate you, congratulate you for that. And encourage you this morning as we go into to the book of Judges again to, to really uh, really hang in there. And I'll try to say some things that hopefully will be applicable to you and, and things that you can think through as well. I know that you guys are capable of this because you do a great job paying attention on Sunday mornings, kids. And I've seen the, the drawings that you do. Uh, in fact, I have uh, this morning, I even opened up my Bible and saw one of the, the notes that one of you have given me one time. So I know that you guys are paying attention. I saw your drawings. A lot of you had drawings of Ehud. Uh, the judge and, and some very graphic drawings from that. So I know that you guys are, are hanging in there and hopefully you can continue to do that this morning, this morning as well. Okay, where are we? We are in the book of Judges and remember the, the, the big theme of the book of Judges is the need for a king. In the book of Judges we see that there is a need for a king and, and the Christ-centered message of this book is that God's people need a king who can completely deliver them. 
And the book of Judges is a very sad book as we see that these judges fall far short of what a king needs to be. And remember, there's, there's three kind of primary sections of the book of Judges. There's an introduction, which obviously we've already covered. Then there's this section of, of cycles, the cycle of sin, servitude, sometimes repentance, and then salvation. So sin, servitude, sometimes repentance, salvation. And that cycle takes place again and again and again. And this morning we're in the fifth of those major cycles of sin, servitude, and salvation. And then later, in a few weeks, we're going to talk about the the horrific conclusion to the book of Judges. But this morning, we're in Judges chapters 10, 11, and 12, and we're looking at primarily this judge named Jephthah. And if you turn your Bibles there and look at chapter 10, you'll notice that the chapter begins by talking about uh, two different judges, Tola in verses uh, 1 and 2, this, this minor judge, and he's kind of described as a judge who brings deliverance, and a peaceful guy except for killing 600 Philistines, but his reign seems to, to end in peace. And then there's uh, Jer the Gileadite in verses 3 through 5, and a, a, another lengthy reign that seems to be marked by its, its peacefulness after uh, Abimelech from chapter 9. And now we come to chapter 6, uh, uh, verse 6 of chapter 10. And let me read to you the story of Israel's sin, and then we're going to talk about Jephthah, this judge, and a little bit of his judgeship. So it begins in verse 6, and the, the cycle of sin, servitude, salvation begins again. The people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and served the Baals, the Ashtaroth, the gods of Syria, the gods of Sidon, the gods, uh, the gods of Moab, the gods of the Ammonites, and the gods of the Philistines. And they forsook the Lord and did not serve him. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he sold them into the hand of the Philistines and into the hand of the Ammonites. And they crushed and oppressed the people of Israel that year. For eighteen years they oppressed all the people of Israel who were beyond the Jordan in the land of the Amorites, which is in Gilead. And the Ammonites crossed the Jordan to fight also against Judah and against Benjamin and against the house of Ephraim, so that, the ha- so that Israel was severely distressed. Verse 10, And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, saying, we, We've sinned against you because we have forsaken our God and, and served the Baals. And the Lord said to the people of Israel, Did I not save you from the Egyptians and from the Amorites? from the Ammonites and from the Philistines. The Sidonians also and the Amalekites and the Maonites oppressed you, and you cried out to me, and I saved you out of their hand. Yet you have forsaken me and served other gods. Therefore I will save you no more. Go and and cry out to the gods whom you have chosen. Let them save you in the time of your distress." And the people of Israel said to the Lord, we've, we've sinned, do to us whatever seems good to you, only please deliver us this day. And so they put away the foreign gods from among them and served the Lord, and he became impatient over the misery of Israel. We come into chapter 11, and God raises up this judge named Jephthah. Jephthah is the son of a prostitute. He's rejected by his people. Whenever his father's other sons rise up, grow up, they kick him out of the, the home out of the territory. He's a Gileadite. Later, the Gileadites come back to him. They say, we need you. And so Jephthah says, I'm, I'm, I'll help you if 
you let me be your leader? And they say, yes, we will. And so Jephthah uh, confronts the Ammonites. The Ammonites don't listen to him. And we come into chapter 11, verse 29. Then the Spirit of the Lord was upon Jephthah, and he passed through Gilead and Manasseh and, and passed on to Mizpah of Gilead. And from Mizpah of Gilead, he passed on to the Ammonites. And Jephthah made a vow to the Lord and said, If you will give the Ammonites into my hand, then whatever comes out from the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the Ammonites shall be the Lord's, and I will offer it up for a burnt offering. So Jephthah crossed over to the Ammonites to fight against them, and the Lord gave them into his hand, and he struck them from Aror to the neighborhood of Meneth, twenty cities, and as far as Abel Karaman with a great blow. So the Ammonites were subdued before the people of Israel. Then Jephthah came to his home at Mizpah, and behold, his daughter came out to meet him with tambourines and with dances. She was his only child. Besides her, he had neither son nor daughter. And as soon as he saw her, he tore his clothes and said, Alas, my daughter, you have brought me very low. You have become the cause of great trouble to me. For I have opened my mouth to the Lord, and I cannot take back my vow. She said to him, My father, you have opened your mouth to the Lord. Do to me according to what has gone out of your mouth, now that the Lord has avenged you of your enemies on the Ammonites. So she said to her father, Let this thing be done for me. Leave me alone for two months, that I may go up and down on the mountains and weep for my virginity, I and my companions. And so he said, Go. Then he sent her away for two months, and she departed, she and her companions, and wept for her virginity on the mountains. And at the end of two months, she returned to her father, who did with her according to his vow that he had made. She had never known a man, and it became a custom in Israel that the daughters of Israel went year by year to lament the daughter of Jephthah the Gileadite for four days in the year. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do this morning lift up your name. We, we glorify you. We want to exalt you. We want your presence uh, to be manifested in our lives, that our, our lives reflect the, the God, the holiness of the God we serve. Father, this morning we would ask that you would bring to our minds an understanding, bring to our hearts a, an awareness of the ways in which we have failed you, the ways in which a worldliness and, and selfishness, idolatry have have creeped into our hearts and allow us to turn from those things to serve you, the living and true God. We would ask that you would enable us this morning by the work of your Holy Spirit within us. And we pray this in your Son, Jesus' name. Amen. I saw a, a poll uh, this, this last week uh, asking Christians what they believed about the, the COVID 19 virus and the, the pandemic and and whether they thought that this was God's judgment on the nation or upon the world. And, and as you can imagine, the, the responses were, were all over the map. Some people said, yes, this is God's judgment. They said, no, this is not God's judgment. Some people said, maybe this is God's judgment. Some people said, yes and no. Some people said, yes and maybe. Some said, maybe and yes. The responses were all over the place. Now, I think whenever we come to a moment of crisis, like we're in right now, and it's not just it's not just the crisis of COVID-19, although for, for many of us, maybe that's what, what the immediate crisis in our lives is. But, but when we come to any time of, of distress, be it 
distress because someone has sinned against us or because we live in a fallen world or maybe we're in a time of distress because of our own sin. I think any time we come to a moment of distress, global distress, uh, personal distress, family distress, I think it's important for us to remember a, a couple of things, a couple of truths. One truth that I think is important for us to remember is when, I, when I'm in a time of distress, I'm reminded that I'm a sinner who deserves judgment. In other words, when I'm in a time of distress, sometimes my temptation might be to say, look, this is not fair. This is, this is too overwhelming. I don't deserve this. Look what's happening to that person. When I'm in a time of distress, I think an important truth to keep in mind is, look, I'm a sinner and, and I deserve God's judgment. Kevin DeYoung gave a, a great talk at Together for the Gospel this, this last uh, week or so and ago, and, and, he, and he said something like this. He said it much more eloquently than I'm saying it, but he said something like, uh, whenever we encounter difficulty, our surprise shouldn't be at, at the suffering, at the difficulty. Rather, our surprise should be that we're not receiving something worse. So I think that's one truth that's important to keep in mind in times of suffering, to be reminded, look, I, I'm a sinner who ultimately deserves God's judgment. A second truth that I think is important to keep in mind is that crises, be it a, a crisis that's my own fault, be it a crisis that someone else is doing, a crisis that's a global pandemic, any crisis is an opportunity for me to be aware that there is a coming judgment and I need to repent and grow in godliness. We, we've talked about this before. Luke chapter 13, remember that, that story in Luke chapter 13 where some people come to Jesus and, and they're talking to him about the, the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled in with the sacrifices. In other words, there had been this horrific display of cruelty by Pilate, and, and the people come to Jesus, and they're talking about these people that this happened to, this, this terrible tragedy. And Jesus says, look, do you think that those Galileans who suffered that way were, were worse sinners than other Galileans? And then Jesus gives an example from another contemporary tragedy. He says, or those, those 18 people that the, the tower in Siloam fell on, do, do you think that those people were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem. And Jesus says something very interesting. He says, no. Those Galileans weren't worse people. The people that the tower fell on, they weren't worse people. That's not why this, this crisis happened to them. This wasn't some sort of judgment from God because they're worse than other people. But then he says, but I tell you, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. In other words, Jesus says this, this time of crisis reminds us that all of us deserve God's judgment, and yet God is a merciful God, and an opportunity uh, arises whenever a crisis occurs that allows us to, to repent, to turn to God, and grow in godliness. And what I would suggest to you this morning is, whatever the crisis in your life is right now, maybe it's the the fallout of COVID-19. COVID maybe it's, the, maybe it's a, a family crisis. Maybe it is a health crisis. Maybe it's a financial crisis as you're, you're wondering about what God is going to do to provide for you. Whatever crisis you're in right now, God in his grace can use that as an opportunity for you to grow in holiness and in sanctification. As God reveals idols 
as God reveals unhealthy thinking, as God reveals your own love of this world, God can use that as an opportunity for you to grow in holiness. And if at the end of this crisis, we've only gotten through the crisis and returned to normalcy without growing in holiness, we've really missed an opportunity, right? Here's the main idea that I want us to think about as we look at Jephthah and we look at the people's repentance here. God can use a crisis. This is the main idea I want us to think about. God can use a crisis to bring his people to true repentance so we can experience the joy of a merciful and all-sufficient Savior. In this story, there is a pathetic repentance, and the result is a cruel, cruel Savior in Jephthah. But God in his grace can use a crisis to bring his people, to bring you and me, to a point of true repentance so that we can experience the joy of a true Savior, of a merciful and an all-sufficient Savior, Jesus Christ. So what we're going to do is we kind of think about this main idea is we're going to look at the people's pathetic repentance and we're going to look at the cruel Savior. We're going to see that God can use crisis to bring his people not to a pathetic repentance but to a true repentance so they can experience not a cruel Savior but a merciful and an all-sufficient Savior. Let's begin by looking at a cruel Savior. I'm sorry, a pathetic repentance. Let's look at this pathetic repentance begins in verse 6, and as, as you look at verse 6, we, we see that there is complete abandonment by the people to worshiping other gods. There, there's no pretense of being God's people here, right? The, the people are, you, you name a god, we're willing to worship it, essentially is what the people are saying. So there's no, there's no attempt by the people to reveal that they are God's covenant people. There's no special covenant relationship that they believe that they have toward God. I'm just going to walk over here a little bit. <laughs> God's response to his people is in verse 7. And in verse 7, we see that God gives them over to the Philistines and the Ammonites. Uh, the, Ammon- the, the Ammonites are dealt with in this story, and the Philistines are going to be dealt with in, in the coming weeks. Uh, the response of the Philistines and the Ammonites occurs in, in the following verses. It says that the, the, peop- the, the people are crushed and oppressed by the people of Israel. For 18 years they oppressed all the people of Israel who were beyond the Jordan, the land of the Amorites, which is in Gilead. The Ammonites cross over the Jordan to, to fight also against Judah, against Benjamin, and, all, and against the house of Ephraim. So we're going to talk more about Gilead in a little bit, but, but Gilead is on the east side of the Jordan River. And so they're, they're oppressed over there, but the oppression enters across the Jordan on the west side where the majority of Israel is, and there's just this, this time of intense oppression. And so the people are distressed by their circumstances, right? They're distressed by this persecution, and they respond with asking for God's deliverance. Look at verse 10. They say to God, to Yahweh, we've sinned against you because we've forsaken our God and we've served the Baals. Now, how might you expect God to respond to that? The people have acknowledged that they've sinned. They've been specific about how they've sinned. 
And they're asking God, who is a forgiving God, who is a merciful God, they're asking God for his deliverance. You would expect God to say, okay, I'm a merciful God, you're asking for forgiveness, I'm going to forgive you. That's not how God responds here. His response might shock you. What does he say? He says, I've I've seen this play out before. And he begins to list all the opportunities that that he's given them, all the, the deliverances, all the salvations that they've experienced. He says, look, I saved you from the Egyptians, the Amorites, the Ammonites, the Philistines, the Sidonians, the Amalekites, the Maonites. You cried out, and I saved you out of their hand. And, and not only does he say that, but then he says that the most shocking thing of all to those of us who would say, well, God is a loving and a merciful and a forgiving God. He says, you've forsaken me. You've served other gods. Therefore, I will save you no more. Go and, and cry out to the gods whom you've chosen. Let them save you the time of your distress. I, I, I've, I've, I, I've already for, provided salvation You've shown no progress in your worship of me. Now you go and you seek out other gods, and the people respond, okay, do what seems good, just deliver us. We've sinned. Now, why doesn't God respond by saying, okay, I'm I'm going to save you? Because God knows the conditions of their hearts. And this might surprise us. But God knows the condition of our hearts, and simply articulating theological truths doesn't mean that your heart truly believes them. The words that the people are saying here, as we know throughout the entirety of Judges and what, Jesus, what, what God is telling them here, the words that they're saying are not reflective of what their heart truly believes about their sin and about Yahweh God. There's a belief that you and I have sometimes, I think. There's a belief, maybe I should just personalize this. There's a belief I sometimes have. That if, if my theology is right about God and his sovereignty and about his love and his mercy, th- then God has to forgive me. In other words, I, I can say, God, I'm a sinner your God who's merciful and sovereign, you've paid for my salvation through the work of your son Jesus, and so forgive me. I'm, I'm, I'm sorry. And, and I believe that I can intellectually understand those things and articulate those things, and, and God has to respond to that. And brothers and sisters, that's not the case. That's not a healthy understanding of the repentance that God calls us to. M- maybe you're one of uh, the younger people in our our church, right? Maybe you're, you're one of our, our grade school uh, students or a high school student, and, uh, and, and, and you, know, you know what I'm talking about. You know fake apologies, right? In fact, maybe, uh, maybe this morning you guys are with your family and, and you're watching this on a couch right now, and, and if your family's like our family, there's a spot on the couch that's, that's the best spot on the couch. And, and may, now, Maybe your family's not like my family, but maybe even this morning as you were all getting ready to come to church to, to listen to God's word, you were so excited, 
you're all, I can't wait to see Pastor Daniel talk, and you're arguing about who loves Pastor Daniel more. You love him more. No, you love him more. You're all excited, and you're getting ready, and, and you, you sit down, and, and there's, there's an argument about who's going to sit on the special spot on the couch. And your, your brother sees you sit down there. You get up just for a moment, and, and he takes your spot, and when you come back, he won't give it back. And it's a very unjust, very terrible thing. And not only that, but maybe there's, maybe there's a little name-calling, maybe there's some couple snide remarks, and mom and dad come in, and, and they know that what your brother did was wrong. And they see that you're upset about it, and they tell your brother, hey, you need to say you're sorry. You need to ask for forgiveness. And your brother looks at you, and he says, with a smirk, I'm sorry. Will you forgive me? And you know, you know he does not feel sorry at all. And mom and dad say, you have to accept the apology. Right? Now, you don't know for sure that his heart isn't in it, but it looks suspicious, right? And it's right for you to accept the apology, to, to, to offer forgiveness. That's what God calls us to. And yet, you know that it's possible for someone to say the words, I'm sorry, please forgive me, and not have a heart that really desires forgiveness and is not repentant. God knows that about you and I as well. It's possible for us to find ourselves in a bad circumstance and, and, and to mouth some words, this is what I need to say to God, this is what I have to say to, to, to get things right, and yet have no heart desire for true repentance, right? Let's talk about some of the characteristics of pathetic repentance. Simply mouthing the words, I'm sorry to God, is, is not true repentance. Here's some characteristics of pathetic repentance. First of all, pathetic re in pathetic repentance, there's a repeated awareness of sin, but no growth in holiness. So there's, I, I'm, I'm constantly aware of the fact that I sin. It, it keeps on happening. I keep on being aware of it. And, and yet, there's no growth in holiness. And, and that's what happens to people here. There's, they sin, and they say they're sorry, and there's deliverance, and, and then there's a, a Savior, and then they fall back into the sin. And so in, in pathetic repentance and not true repentance, I can look at my life, and, and over, over years I see no growth in my, my holiness. I, see, I don't see God truly working in my life, and, and I, I, when I see that, I need to be very concerned. Now, of course, I think there are going to be areas in all of our lives where the enemy continues to work, and there are going to be things that I struggle with at 60 and at 70 and at 80. There were some of the same things that I struggled with when I was a new believer at, at 20 or even at 10. You know, there's some, some sin things that, I, that, I, that I'm always going to struggle with, and yet if I cannot see over a period of time any growth in those areas, that, that's a cause for concern. Maybe I'm a young person or an older person who's, who's struggling with, with lust, and, and that lust has expressed itself in, in viewing pornography, and, and that's just, I, I've been enslaved to that, and, and year after year, there, there's no growth in that. There, there's cyclical, but no real attempts to fight it, no confession, no growth. That's concerning. Maybe I'm a person who's struggled with anger, and my life is characterized by anger and by conflict, and there's, there's no growth in that. That's, that's concerning. The lack of growth should concern me. A second characteristic of, of pathetic repentance, 
there's, there's an aversion to the consequences of sin. There's an aversion to the consequences of sin, but not hatred of the, of the sin itself. You know, sin brings guilt, and sin brings hard circumstances, and the Israelites don't like the guilt, they don't like the hard circumstances that the sin brings, and, and, and they don't want those things in their life anymore. In pathetic repentance, I want relief from those things, and my motivation is not an aversion to the sin itself. The, the sin still seems delightful to me. The, the sin itself still seems like a, a wonderful thing, a thing that I still crave, a thing that I still desire. I just don't want the consequences. A third characteristic of pathetic repentance, there's a desire to barter with God, but not a willingness to receive his gift of grace. The people here, as they talk to God, say, okay, God, we'll, we'll do this. If, if we do this, will you give us deliverance? And, and there's no sense of awareness of, I've, I've sinned against Yahweh, God. Lord, do what seems best to you, and, and we just need your mercy and your grace. So like, okay, if, if we do this, will you do this? It's, it's pathetic repentance. The response the people shows that, that they somehow believe they can still do things that will earn God's favor. God calls us to understand that we can only receive grace from him, not on the basis of our own works. In fact, whenever the writer of Hebrews talks about repentance, what does he say? He says we need to, to repent of, we need to turn from dead works. And the idea is that I, I have this belief that I can, can work to find my own joy. And what God says is, look, you need to turn from that belief and you need to tr- turn to me, the living God. So turn away from this idea that you can find your own joy either through your, your, man-made, uh, your man-made attempts to bring honor to me, your man-made attempts to, to do the right thing, all those things are not going to lead to joy. You need to to turn from those things and instead turn to me. What the people here are doing is instead of turning from their own self-sufficiency, they're just continuing down that road of self-sufficiency, saying, okay, we'll do this, God, and then maybe you can do this. That's not true repentance. That's the heart of the legalist. A couple thoughts of application. We need to understand what true repentance is. True repentance, as we've talked about before, is, is, is it's, it's, yes, it's an intellectual understanding, okay, this is, this, is, this is sin, this is not something that God would desire me to do, and, and the people begin to at least have that, but then in addition to an intellectual understanding of, of sin, there's an, an aversion to it, there's this emotional response of, this is not something that I desire anymore to be a part of my life, and then there is a, a turning from that to God. Say, okay, I'm I'm going to turn away. There's a decision to turn away from those things, to turn to God. It's not works. It's a a turning to God, recognizing his sufficiency. We need to look then. Another thought of application is as we think about our sin, as we think about just living in a fallen world, we should see the fruit of godly sorrow in our life. 2 Corinthians 7 talks about the fruit of godly sorrow, the, the type of repentance that it produces. Now, how do we have this type of repentance? We don't continue down the road of self-sufficiency. We recognize the beauty of our God, and we turn away from our works and throw ourselves upon him and his mercy as we worship him. And that brings us to the second point that I want us to think about. A pathetic repentance brings about 
a cruel Savior. So let's talk about this cruel Savior. And, and we don't have time to, to go into all the aspects of Jephthah's life. But, but understand this, Jephthah is a Gileadite. Now, uh, Gileadites, who are the Gileadites? Remember, there's the, the 12 tribes of Israel. And, and Joseph has two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. And each of them receive status as one of the 12 tribes. And ha- uh, half of the tribe of Manasseh settles on the east side of the Jordan River. So Manasseh is over there on the east side of the Jordan River. And the tribe of Manasseh has various clan leaders, like kind of smaller leaders. So you have Israel, and you have Manasseh. And then within Manasseh, you have this guy, Gilead. Gilead is Joseph's like great-grandson. Okay? And he becomes a clan leader. And he becomes a, a very strong clan. A lot of Gileadites, they become a very strong clan within the tribe of Manasseh. And they, they have a territory, and that territory is called Gilead. So there's a guy named Gilead, there's a territory named Gilead, and then as, the, the, as time goes on, there are descendants of his who also take up the name Gilead. It's like, um, it's like there's George Washington, right? Father of our country, a person. And then uh, in honor of George Washington, different places are called Washington. This Washington this, Washington this, Washington, Illinois. And then people are sometimes named Washington. So you can be a person born in Washington, Illinois, named Washington in honor of George Washington. Okay? So there's Gilead, the territory of Gilead, and then uh, all the people who live there, the Gileadites, and then a descendant whose name is Gilead. And so in chapter 11, we are introduced to Jephthah the, the Gileadite, whose father's name is Gilead, named after the original Gilead in the air territory of Gilead. And Jephthah, son of a prostitute, and he is driven away by his brothers whenever they reach age of maturity. Then the, the people of Gilead are oppressed, and whenever they're oppressed, they come to Jephthah and say, hey, Jephthah, will you reign over us? Because Jephthah had uh, grown in power. He's a mighty warrior. The, the text tells us, and he had surrounded himself with, worth, uh, with worthless fellows, and they're, they're strong. And so they, hey, Jephthah, will you come, and will you deliver us from the Ammonites? And Jephthah says, look, if you make me your leader, yes, I will. They say, yes, we will. And he says, okay. And then he goes, and he talks to, through messengers, he talks to the Ammonites, and they argue about this territory, and uh, Jephthah is able to uh, argue effectively and say, look, this, your, your perception of this territory is not true. This, this territory was never yours. We didn't take it from you. Uh, we took it from someone else that God gave it to us. So he, he argues both historically and theologically. What he says is right. The Ammonites don't listen, and so they're about to have this, this war, this battle. And Jephthah, it says in uh, verse 29, that the Spirit of the Lord comes upon Jephthah, and he goes around gathering, mustering the troops. God is effective in that. But Jephthah doesn't trust in God's provision. And he believes he needs to, to earn God's deliverance. And so he makes this, this terrible vow. He says, whatever comes out of my house, God, I'm going to offer it to you as, as a burnt offering. And then the story goes on. It talks about his victory. And then his, his daughter is the, the first thing that comes out of his door. And Jephthah offers her as a sacrifice. It's, it's a terrible, terrible story. And then you go into chapter 12. And Jephthah, as he reigns as judge, he gets in a conflict with his 
with the, the brother tribe of Ephraim, and there's this terrible bloodshed, and 42,000 Ephraimites end up dead. Jephthah, in the book of Judges, is not a good savior. He's a cruel savior. What are some characteristics of, of a cruel savior? Number one, a cruel savior this re- is a rejected deliverer who promises relief but not love. Jephthah, his, his interaction with the Gileadites, he comes back to him and says, yeah, you rejected me, but instead of, instead of being gracious, instead of offering them salvation and saying, you know what, I, I forgive you and I'm going to lead you, God's provided, he says, look, I'm going to give you relief, but this is not out of love. What are you going to give to me? He's a rejected deliverer who promises relief but not love. A second characteristic of this cruel Savior, he's a bold prophet who proclaims facts but not truth. You see that? He's a bold prophet. He says some true things to the Ammonites, but what he says, they're, they're facts, but he doesn't understand truth. He engages in this, this, this pagan vow, believing that he can somehow appease Yahweh God. And this, this vow that he makes shows that he has no understanding of the character of God and the fact that he doesn't understand that, that God would not have him do this, the fact that he doesn't understand that, that God would provide provision for relief from these types of vows, the, the fact that he doesn't uh, exercise his leadership in a, a God-glorifying way shows us that he understands facts, but he doesn't understand the truth. He doesn't have a relationship with Yahweh God. He's like a legalist. He, he serves a God who's a cruel caricature of the true God. A legalist believes that he or she can, can barter with God in order to obtain the things they desire. They understand certain truths about God. They understand, okay, God wants me to read my Bible. God wants me to give. God wants me to serve in ministry. They understand facts about God, and yet they don't understand the true God. They don't understand the true God. They don't understand his love. They understand these caricature things about God. And then thirdly, a a cruel savior is a a mighty warrior who brings victory, but not mercy. Jephthah here is a mighty warrior, and he brings victory, but not not mercy. At the end of his his story, his daughter and 42,000 Ephraimites are dead. Christ is a contrast to all of this, right? He also is a rejected deliverer, right? But he's a rejected deliverer who loves those who have rejected him. Romans 5 tells us that while we were still his enemies, Christ died for us. In Isaiah 53, 3, he's, he's a sufferer. He's, a, he's also a bold prophet, but he proclaims truth, knows God, and is God. He brings us into relationship with the true triune God, not just some sort of, of legalistic recreation of a relationship. He brings us into true relationship. And he's also a mighty warrior, but he's a mighty warrior who brings true victory and bestows mercy on those who were his enemies. Brothers and sisters, here is the beauty of crisis. Crisis allows us to be brought to a point, and in that point, to recognize our failings, to recognize our idols, to recognize our our failure to love God rightly, our our failure to, uh, to, to rightly understand our relationship to the world. Crisis brings that out. 
And in a crisis, God allows us to experience not pathetic repentance, but true repentance to say, okay, God, I, I, I understand that this is sin. I grieve that this is sin, and I desire to turn from this, but I desire to turn not to this, to some sort of cruel, legalistic Savior. I desire to turn to you, the true Savior, the mighty warrior, the, the kind victor, the bold prophet, the rejected deliverer. I want to turn this morning, God, to you. God can use a crisis to bring his people to true repentance so we can experience the joy of a merciful and all-sufficient Savior. We're going to close with uh, a song here, and then after the song, I'm going to give you a couple questions that you as, as a family or you as a, an individual, maybe as you talk to your care group later this week, that you can talk through with them. And just some things to kind of help us think and apply uh, this, this message yourself. To my family, who's probably there on the couch, maybe this is something we can talk about uh, over lunch. Don't have all the fun without me. I'm going to be a part of the conversation. And so we're going to talk about those questions after we, we sing the song. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for our, our time together this morning. We thank you for the opportunity for us to come to the book of Judges and in the and the failings of this judge to, to see the, the beauty of our, our true deliverer, Jesus Christ, a rejected deliverer, a, a mighty warrior, a bold prophet who allows us to enter into relationship with you through faith in his name alone. We pray that we would turn from, from worthless idols to our living God. We pray this in your son Jesus' name. Amen.